turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue our series in the five solas, um, the alones of the Reformation. Why do we protest, I, uh, is the question I asked. We are Protestants, thus we are protesting really over five predominant doctrines. Last week I dealt with Scripture alone as really the formal cause of the Reformation or the source of our authority is the Bible. This is our authority right here. And this alone, it oversees every other subordinate authority or standard. So we dealt with that last week. This week we're dealing with sola gratia or grace alone. That is the sole cause of our salvation is grace alone. So I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 in that light, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word together this morning, as we look at what your spirit superintended at the hand of your apostle Paul, we ask that your spirit would illumine our minds, he would turn on the lights in our dark minds so that we would understand your word. We ask that you would make our hearts into good soil so that the seed of the word would fall on our hearts and become rooted and grow and produce fruit. We pray, Father, that as we consider why you saved us, that we would be ever mindful and joyful and thankful that you did it because of grace alone. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to submit to you this morning that ultimately there are really only two religions in the world. Ready? Two religions in the world. One is naturalism. The other is supernaturalism. You say, what? Another way to say this really is that there are two religions. One is God-centered. One is man-centered. As a result, there are really only two doctrines of salvation. As the great 19th century Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said, there are fundamentally only two doctrines of salvation. That salvation is from God, and that salvation is from ourselves. 
The former is the doctrine of common Christianity. The latter is the doctrine of universal heathenism. In spite of all claims, there really is only true Christianity or heathenism. Those are the two options in the world. Heathenism may come packaged in a variety of ways. It might come packaged as naturalism or animism or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or even some forms of so-called Christianity. But it is fundamentally the same. In all of these religions, man is at the center of his own salvation. In all of these heathen or humanistic religions, the voice of the serpent whispering in the garden, you won't surely die, you will be like God, comes ringing through. Salvation, or whatever a particular religion may refer to as the highest goal of man, within heathenism, salvation is a self-saving project. Don't trust the word of the Lord, trust yourself. See, I earn Allah's kindness. I achieve nirvana. I appease the spirits. Or I make my own happiness by believing in myself. True Christianity may be named under a variety of denominations or movements throughout history, but it is only, true Christianity is only that which is supernatural from above, from God. True Christianity is always and only salvation of a dead, corrupted, rebellious, law-breaking enemy of God by the divine and supernatural work of God. True Christianity is only and always salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But even from within so-called Christian circles... There has been a consistent perverting of the faith. Because see, here's the problem with our hearts. As Luther said, they're curvatus and say, they're curved in on themselves. And therefore, there's always a push toward self-salvation, toward man-centeredness. Our hearts are always hopelessly drifting toward self. The sovereign grace of God is never really preferred. I must contribute. And this drift toward self-salvation, this drift toward man-centeredness, um, first popped up probably most famously, it's not the first time it ever happened, but most famously happened in the response of a man named Pelagius, who was a British monk, to a man named Augustine, who was a North African bishop. Most famously popped up to the between them. And and how did it happen? Augustine had written a prayer. You want to hear the prayer? Here's the prayer. God, command what you will and give what you command. The British monk Pelagius objected to the prayer. Now, most of us here think, why would he object to that prayer? See, Pelagius agreed that God can command what he wills. However, he objected to the part of the prayer where it says, give what you command. He argued that God does not command anything that we cannot do ourselves. Thus, we need not ask God to give us the ability to keep his commands because we're really born with the ability to keep God's commands. And Augustine objected to this and argued that we're all born with what we now call original sin. 
They're all born with that. Augustine went on to say that we are born guilty and corrupted in Adam. Therefore, we're not able, you hear that? Not able to keep God's commands. Sure, we may find ways externally to obey, but not from the heart and not for the glory of God. Pelagius argued that we are able to keep God's commands because he argued we are born naturally good. Adam provided a bad example for us, and most of us follow his example. Jesus provides a good example for us, and the Christian's job, according to Pelagius, is to follow the example of Jesus. The Christian must look to the Sermon on the Mount and the moral example of Jesus And in them see a life that he is able to attain, not a moral standard which crushes his self-salvation project. Thus, for Pelagius, there's a primary or central question of Christianity. Here's what it is. For Pelagius and all his followers, the primary or central question of Christianity is WWJD. What would Jesus do? Now, that's not a bad question to ask. It's just not primary and central. For Augustine, the primary Christianity, or excuse me, primary question or central question of Christianity is what has Jesus done? Pelagius believed the gospel was good advice. Augustine believed the gospel was good news. Augustine and true Christianity thankfully won the first round in the early church. Thankfully, Augustine won. However, over time, the church began to slide into teaching um, that was more akin to Pelagius' view of things. The church began to slide into a man-centered religion of meriting, earning God's favor. Sure, God's grace was necessary to help us please God, and we needed to believe in Jesus, but we also, we also needed to do good works in order to merit God's favor Man was once again in the business of self-salvation within the walls of the Christian church. Though, though God helped out because, you know, God helps those who help themselves. There were multiple pastors and theologians who challenged this move toward self-salvation throughout the centuries, by the way. Multiple throughout the centuries. But for our purposes, I want to fast forward to the 16th century. In the 16th century, a man named Martin Luther... Uh, Augustinian, by the way, Roman Catholic monk and a professor at the University of Wittenberg launched quite accidentally what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. He protested the gospel being taught by Rome. He wanted to reform the church, not abandon it. He taught that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He said that we contribute nothing to our salvation. Salvation is all of grace. Luther was challenged by the Roman Catholic scholar Erasmus. Erasmus realized that Luther was arguing that man was not able to choose the good. He realized that Luther was saying that man is guilty and corrupt in Adam. He realized that Luther was saying that every faculty of man was in sin and man was spiritually dead and in rebellion and unable to choose rightly. See, he was realizing that Luther was even arguing that faith, even faith, cannot be self-generated. Doesn't come from within. So Erasmus countered Luther and wrote a book against him. 
Luther responded in a famous book called The Bondage of the Will. And in the book, Luther confirmed that he was indeed arguing that man is unable to believe apart from a work of divine grace. And he told Erasmus that in understanding this, Erasmus, and this is a direct quote, had put his finger on the hinge on which the whole Reformation turns. Erasmus had identified the center of controversy for Luther. The center of the controversy for Luther was that salvation is all of grace. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. Man contributes nothing to his own salvation. Man is not even able to believe apart from the divine work of God's supernatural grace. And this controversy, incidentally, has continued to our day. Is salvation all of grace? Is Augustine right or Pelagius? Is Luther right or Erasmus? Is Rome right or the Protestants? See, is salvation a supernatural work of God's sovereign grace, or do we contribute in some kind of self-saving way? Are we dead in our sins and unable to believe as Augustine and Luther and the Reformers taught, or are we able to believe and in some sense contribute to our own salvation? That is the central question. In other words, does God save us because of something inherent in us, Or does he save us because of something inherent in himself? To answer that question, I want to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And as we do, we'll come back to this passage, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. But as we do, I want to see the passage in two parts. Here's the first part. The sinful condition of man. What is our real condition? The sinful condition of man. Second part, the gracious response of God. What is his response to us? His gracious response. Let's look at the condition of man first. Verse 1. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. Notice that word. That's an important word. You were dead. You're not just sick. Not just sleeping. And as much as I like the movie The Princess Bride, you're not just mostly dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're spiritually stillborn. You're a walking corpse. So the question becomes, what kind of quality of faith can a dead man have? Can a dead man believe? Can a dead man do works that earn merit with God? Can a dead man save himself? No, he's dead. And thus he needs to be saved by another. Further, go on, verse 2. You're disobedient. Not only are you dead, but you're disobedient. Verse 2, trespass the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. In other words, you were following the pattern of this world and its sinfulness. Following the prince of the power of the air. If it wasn't bad enough that you're following the world, you're following Satan. That's where you were. Dead, following the world's sinfulness, following Satan, the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience. You are a son of disobedience. That's who you were. Among whom we all once lived. Now how? In the passions of our flesh. We did what our bodies desired. You made choices. 
The problem is, all the choices you made in your spiritually dead state were focused on your own pleasure. And your own pleasure was not the glory of God, it was the glory of self. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You hear that? We transgressed the law. Violated. The law summed up in the Ten Commandments. We transgressed it. We followed the pattern of Satan in this world. We did not sin. Now I want you to hear this. We did not sin because we were ignorant of the truth and uneducated and did not know better. That is not why we sinned. I know the world thinks the problem for people is a lack of education. And if you just educate people, people will be more kind and more generous and more godly in some way. And the fact is, if you look through history, the most tyrannical, horrific, evil figures in the history of man have been quite well educated. Hitler. Stalin, Lenin. Just in the last century. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. To suppress the truth means to stand over it and press it down like you're its authority. Notice what these people are doing. They're suppressing the truth. It's not that they're not aware of the truth. It's that they don't like the truth. In ungodliness and in unrighteousness, they suppress it. goes on. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Now, is the gospel plain to them? No, it is not. But God's law is. Who God is and what he commands of us is. The gospel is not. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one whom they've never believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? How beautiful, and how can they preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? Here's the thing. You don't hear the gospel apart from the proclamation of the gospel by preachers of the word. But... You are born knowing there is a God and he has a right and he has a wrong and you're violating it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Go down to verse 32. Though they know God's decree, they know this, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We sin because we're rebellious and wicked Not because we're ignorant and uneducated. We're not a mixed bag, by the way, with some good and some sin, and we have with this potential so our good works will outweigh our bad. That's not true. There's nothing good in us. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews? 
Any better off than who? The Gentiles. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. How many of you are righteous? None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We don't seek God. God seeks us. Jesus came to seek and save that was lost. He wasn't waiting around for us to seek him. If he was waiting around for that, he would never have come. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, we are sinners who love our sin. That's why Jesus said in John 3.19, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So we are dead in our sins. We are disobedient to God from the heart. We are destined for wrath. Verse Go back to Ephesians 2 and look again at verse 3, the last part of it. And we were by nature. By nature, that's by birth. That's who we are because of the fall. We weren't created to be this way originally because Adam fell. In Adam's fall sinned we all. We all fell with him. And as a result, by nature... By nature, by birth, we are children of wrath. That's what we were, like the rest of mankind. Who was a child of wrath by nature? All of mankind, including us. That's who we were. That's who we were. We were those who were by nature, from birth, guilty and corrupted and destined for wrath. You did not sin because you had bad parents and you were raised in a poor environment. Or because you lacked proper education. You sinned because it's in your nature to sin. Further, your problem is not and has never been that had someone just given you the right information, you would never have traveled down a sinful road. It's not true. You're by nature this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of God the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the lie that we are told and that we tell ourselves that we would have pleased God and kept his word if only we had been told the truth, and that's fundamentally a false assertion. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, That's where you're born with a mindset in the flesh is hostile to God. You're not even neutral. You're hostile. You are born with a mind opposed to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not may not, isn't permitted. It is incapable, unable to submit to his law. Those who are in the flesh cannot, they are in, un, excuse me, unable, incapable of pleasing God. 
Here is our sinful condition. We are spiritually stillborn, dead, rebellious, hostile in mind toward God, incapable of doing anything righteous that merits God's favor. We are born opposed to God as his enemies, as those who are hostile in mind toward him, as those who hate his commands because we hate that anyone commands us. So why in a sermon I titled Sola Gratia, Grace Alone, do I spend so much time on our spiritually dead condition? I mean, that's pretty depressing, isn't it? Grace Alone's a sermon. It's going to be so positive and upbeat. Wow, what a downer this guy is. All right, so why do I spend so much time on that? Because what you believe about man and what our problem is is determinative as to what you think about salvation. If you think man is somewhat good and somewhat capable and his problem is really something outside of himself, then you think that man is able in some way to contribute to his salvation. Whether you contribute meritorious good works that earn favor with God, or you contribute some kind of virtuous faith that earns favor with God. You believe fundamentally that you contribute. I mean, sure, you might say that grace is a help and that grace is necessary, but we still contribute. Further, if you do not believe, if you do not believe that our fundamental problem is that we are wicked sinners, then you will not really believe That the outcome of our lives, in and of ourselves, is condemnation in hell. You will not believe that hell is just punishment. And the ultimate problem that you need saving from, you will not believe that it's from God's wrath. You will think your salvation is about something else. Salvation from a bad marriage. Salvation from disobedient children. Salvation from a lack of success. Salvation from low self-esteem. Salvation from this. Salvation from that. But ultimately, you will not realize that salvation is from God and his wrath, his just, righteous wrath against your sin and against you. He doesn't just throw your sin in hell. He throws you there. So salvation will become about something else. Salvation will not be about God saving us from his own wrath against us. See, in our culture, salvation will likely become about God helping us to achieve the happiness that eludes us, won't it? Our culture is obsessed with happiness. And that God is there to help us overcome it. Whether that's God intervening to help us achieve the government we believe will be hap- that we will make us happier, or God intervening to help us achieve the education that we believe we really need in order to be more financially secure and thoughtful, or God intervening to help us achieve the family life that we've always dreamed of having, or God intervening to help us achieve our potential good and helping us overcome self-doubt and really believe in ourselves, or God intervening to help us achieve the morally exemplary life that we know we can live if we just have the right example. And thus the gospel will become a form of good advice for you. The ultimate question of the Christian life will become for you, what would Jesus do? Preaching will become about principles for living. Worship services will become about giving you the kind of experience that causes you to leave feeling optimistic and upbeat and entertained so that you're fueled 
to go out into the world and try again. I've seen this kind of ministry over and over. I've participated in this kind of ministry. I just read a church website. I won't name the church. I want you to hear what they say. Here at, and I'll just leave the church name blank, we are all about inviting you to a better life. Now, I thought at first when I was reading this, I was reading The Onion. You guys familiar with that? But I wasn't. It goes on. That's what we do. It's based on what Jesus said he was all about. When asked what he was on earth to do, Jesus said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Really? He then had them write on a... Uh, I, I, well, I'll, just, I'll go on. I was at another church service one time. I won't even say what city it was in. But I was at a church service, and I heard the pastor as he literally led the people of his church through how they'd wrecked their lives with sin, doing a very good job bringing the consequences of sin down on them. And then he had these pieces of paper that they had to fill out, and on the pieces of paper, uh, at the beginning, it said, this is, this is the story I, of my life I've written so far. And then there were blanks, and you, you filled in the wreck you had made, the sins you had committed. And so while people were filling that in, the band was singing, leading in music, and people were filling that in and taking it and putting it in baskets up front. And then what was happening is the cameras were going down on the, they were taking a piece of paper and focusing the camera on, and so on the big screens, you would see, not anybody's name, but you would see, this is how I made a wreck of my life or the story I've written so far. I'm an adulterer. I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm in an abusive marriage. I'm a drug addict. And one after another, these folks' sins and destructive lives were being shown on the big screen in the church, and, and folks were weeping in the service. And I remember thinking to myself, as the pastor got back up to conclude, and I thought, well, surely now he'll preach the gospel. He's got them right where he wants them. The pastor got back up, and, and here's what he said. He said to these folks, those are the stories you've written so far. Now go out this week and write a better story for yourself. What? One of the elders at Sovereign Grace was with me, and I had to tell him to sit down almost and be quiet because he was so angry. <laughs> what? They already have a better story. There already is a better story. It was written by Jesus. Tell them about him. He's the good story for them. He's the good news. They don't need to go write a different story. They will just mess it up again. They need him. We're dead in our sins. We're rebellious. We are, by nature, children of wrath. We are hostile in mind toward God. We have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And God's just wrath burns white hot against us. By ourselves, we are helpless and hopeless and hellbound. But God. Look at Ephesians 2 4. But God. Do you hear those two glorious words? Do you hear that contrast word? But. Here it comes. Here's the contrast. Here's where you are in and of yourself. And now here's the contrast. But. Here's the contrast. But. But what? But God. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this was a gospel presentation in two words. But God, herein is the gracious response of God. But God, it doesn't say, but man, but you, but God and me. God and us together. But God, too simple, stunning, breathtaking, life-giving, joy-inducing words. Perhaps this whole sermon and the whole Reformation, the whole gospel is summed up in these words. But God, but God what? Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Did you hear that? What moved God to save you? What's the answer? What moves him to save you? Was it something in you? Did you contribute anything in this passage other than sin? It was all of grace. But God, because of who he is, because he is merciful and loving, because of who he is, he made us alive together in Christ. We were dead. We did nothing. And because of him, he made us alive. He saved us. This is glorious, supernatural salvation. This is not about us cooperating with God. This is not due to some good he saw in us. This was about him saving us. By grace, look at go on to verse 5 as he summarizes it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Here's a summary statement. By grace you have been saved. God showed you unmerited, undeserved favor in Christ. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. And because he loves you with great love. He is gracious. He chose to be favorable to us. Look at what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, 6. And he raised us up with him. That spiritual resurrection from the dead. Regeneration. Being born again. He raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, we were rewarded. For what? We're resurrected with Christ and rewarded with Christ. What did we contribute Why did he do it? Verse 7. So that, here's the purpose. So that in the coming ages, he might show. What does God want to show off? Your goodness, right? No. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And in case you have missed the point, Paul relentlessly brings you back to the point, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. And that word, have been saved, is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means that it's a completed past action that has ongoing consequences. It already happened. You were dead in your sins, but you have been saved, have been saved by grace. 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't do anything. It is the gift of God. Even the faith is the gift of God. This whole complex, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, is all a gift by God grammatically here. Not your own doing. And in case you missed it, verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And even our good works, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even those are just an effect. There's something that happens as a result of our salvation, not something that adds to our salvation. Here's the thing. You have been saved by grace through faith. You do not add to it. You cannot take away from it. It is accomplished. None of it is from you. Think of that. Think of that. God shows favor to you in Christ because he wants to. Not because you somehow earned it. That is gloriously good news, folks. Because if you know the truth about yourself, you know that what's in you would never drive God to be gracious to you. You are thankful that it's because he is loving and gracious that he set his favor upon you. And not because you are somehow lovable or good. Because if it was dependent on any of that, we would all despair. Even your good works are an effect of your salvation. They're results. They don't add to your salvation. We do good works because we are saved, not to earn salvation. We are saved sola gratia, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Christian message is not. The Christian message is not that we have good advice of a great burden for all the people. The Christian message is that we have good news of great joy for all the people. Christ Jesus, Lord. God saves you by grace alone. To which we sing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was Grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who trust in you and your grace alone. That we would know that it is because the kindness that is inherent in you, because of the love that you have for us, that you sent your Son to live the perfect life we failed to, to pay for our sins on the cross, to raise from the dead conquering sin and death so that we might be justified, forgiven, cleansed, 
We pray, Father, that we would ever and always give thanks to you for your grace, knowing that your grace is the cause of your saving us, not anything in us. Father, as we sing and as we consider for the next few weeks the ground of our salvation in your Son and the instrument through which we receive it in faith, Father, we pray that you would keep us relentlessly focused on the fact that our salvation comes from outside of us, that you condescended in sending your Son to us, that he condescended on our behalf so that we might be saved. May we receive that gift of grace in your Son, Jesus Christ, as needy beggars with open hands who contribute nothing, who receive everything because of who you are. Praise in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.